Lecture 6 of the Varieties of Religious Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Lecture 6 The Sick Soul. At our last meeting, we considered the healthy minded temperament the temperament which has a constitutional incapacity for prolonged suffering, and in which the tendency to see things optimistically is like a water of crystallization in which the individual's character is set. We saw how this temperament may become the basis for a peculiar type of religion, a religion in which good, even the good of this world's life, is regarded as the essential thing for a rational being to attend to this religion directs him to settle his scores with the more evil aspects of the universe by systematically declining to lay them to heart or make much of them by ignoring them in his reflective calculations or even on occasion by denying outright that they exist evil is a disease and worry over disease is itself an additional form of disease which only adds to the original complaint even repentance and remorse, affections which come in the character of ministers of good, may be but sickly and relaxing impulses. The best repentance is to up and act for righteousness, and forget that you ever had relations with sin. Spinoza's philosophy has this sort of healthy-mindedness woven into the heart of it, and this has been one secret of its fascination he whom reason leads according to spinoza is led altogether by the influence over his mind of good knowledge of evil is an inadequate knowledge fit only for slavish minds so spinoza categorically condemns repentance when men make mistakes he says quote, one might perhaps expect gnawings of conscience and repentance to help to bring them on the right path and might thereupon conclude, as everyone does conclude, that these affections are good things. Yet, when we look at the matter closely, we shall find that not only are they not good, but on the contrary, deleterious and evil passions. For it is manifest that we can always get along better by reason and love of truth than by worry of conscience and remorse. Harmful are these and evil, inasmuch as they form a particular kind of sadness, and the disadvantage of sadness I have already proved, and shown that we should strive to keep it from our life, just so we should endeavor, since uneasiness of conscience and remorse are of this kind of complexion, to flee and shun these states of mind. Close quote. Within the Christian body, for which repentance of sins has from the beginning been the critical religious act, healthy-mindedness has always come forward with its milder interpretation. Repentance, according to such healthy-minded Christians, means getting away from sin, not groaning and writhing over its commission. The Catholic practice of confession and absolution is in one of its aspects little more than a systematic method of keeping healthy-mindedness on top. By it, a man's accounts with evil are periodically squared and audited, so that he may start the clean page with no old debts inscribed. Any Catholic will tell us how clean and fresh and free he feels after the purging operation. Martin Luther, by no means belonged to the healthy-minded type in the radical sense in which we have discussed it, and he repudiated priestly absolution for sin. Yet, in this matter of repentance, he had some very healthy-minded ideas, due, in the main, to the largeness of his conception of God. He says, quote, When I was a monk, I thought that I was utterly cast away, if at any time I felt the lust of the flesh, that is to say, if I felt any evil motion, fleshly lust, wrath, hatred, or envy against any brother, I essayed many ways to help to quiet my conscience. But it would not be, for the concupiscence and lust of my flesh did always return, so that I could not rest, 
but was continually vexed with these thoughts. This or that sin thou hast committed, thou art infected with envy, with impatiency, with other such sins. Therefore thou art entered into this holy order in vain, and all thy good works are unprofitable. But if then I had rightly understood these sentences of Paul, the flesh lusteth contrary to the spirit, and the spirit contrary to the flesh, and these two are one against another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would do. I would not have so miserably tormented myself, but should have thought and said to myself as now commonly I do, Martin, thou shalt not utterly be without sin, for thou hast flesh, thou hast therefore feel the battle thereof. I remember that Staupitz was wont to say, I have vowed unto God above a thousand times that I would become a better man, but I never performed that which I vowed. Hereafter I will make no such vow, for I have now learned by experience that I am not able to perform it. Unless, therefore, God be favorable and merciful unto me for Christ's sake, I shall not be able, with all my vows and all my good deeds, to stand before him. This of Staupitz's was not only a true, but also a godly and a holy desperation, and this must they all confess, both with mouth and heart who will be saved. For the godly trust not to their own righteousness. They look unto Christ their reconciler, who gave his life for their sins. Moreover, they know that the remnant of sin which is in their flesh is not laid to their charge, but freely pardoned. Notwithstanding, in the mean, while they fight in spirit against the flesh, lest they should fulfill the lusts thereof, and although they feel the flesh to rage and rebel, and themselves also do fall sometimes into sin through infirmity, yet are they not discouraged, nor think, therefore, that their state and kind of life and the works which are done according to their calling displease God, but they raise up themselves by faith. One of the heresies for which the Jesuits got that spiritual genius Molinos, the founder of Quietism, so abominably condemned was his healthy-minded opinion of repentance. Quote, when thou fallest into a fault, in what matter soever it be, do not trouble nor afflict thyself for it, for they are effects of our frail nature, stained by original sin. The common enemy will make thee believe, as soon as thou fallest into any fault, that thou walkest in error, and therefore art out of God and his favor, and herewith would he make thee distrust of the divine grace, telling thee of thy misery, and making a giant of it, and putting it into thy head, that every day thy soul grows worse instead of better, whilst it so often repeats these failings. O blessed soul, open thine eyes, and shut the gate against these diabolical suggestions, knowing thy misery, and trusting in the mercy divine. Would not he be a mere fool who, running at tournament with others, and falling in the best of the career, should lie weeping on the ground, and afflicting himself with discourses upon his fall? Man, they would tell him, lose no time, get up, and take the course again. For he that rises again quickly, and continues his race, is as if he had never fallen. If thou seest thyself fallen once and a thousand times, thou oughtest to make use of the remedy which I have given thee, that is, a loving confidence in the divine mercy. These are the weapons with which thou must fight and conquer cowardice and vain thoughts. This is the means thou oughtest to use, not to lose time, not to disturb thyself, and reap no good. Close quote. Now, in contrast with such healthy-minded views as these, if we treat them as a way of deliberately minimizing evil, stands a radically opposite view, a way of maximizing evil, if you please so to call it, 
based on the persuasion that the evil aspects of our life are of its very essence, and that the world's meaning most comes home to us when we lay them most to heart. We have now to address ourselves to this more morbid way of looking at the situation. But as I closed our last hour with a general philosophical reflection on the healthy-minded way of taking life, I should like at this point to make another philosophical reflection upon it before turning to that heavier task. You will excuse the brief delay. If we admit that evil is an essential part of our being, and the key to the interpretation of our life, we load ourselves down with a difficulty that has always proved burdensome in philosophies of religion. Theism, whenever it has erected itself into a systematic philosophy of the universe, has shown a reluctance to let God be anything less than all in all. In other words, philosophic theism has always shown a tendency to become pantheistic and monistic, and to consider the world as one unit of absolute fact. And this has been at variance with popular or practical theism, which latter has ever been more or less frankly pluralistic, not to say polytheistic, and shown itself perfectly well satisfied with a universe composed of many original principles, provided we be only allowed to believe that the divine principle remains supreme, and that the others are subordinate. In this later case, God is not necessarily responsible for the existence of evil. He would only be responsible if it were not finally overcome. But on the monistic or pantheistic view, evil, like everything else, must have its foundation in God. And the difficulty is to see how this can possibly be the case if God be absolutely good. This difficulty faces us in every form of philosophy in which the world appears as one flawless unit of fact. Such a unit is an individual, and in it the worst parts must be as essential as the best, must be as necessary to make the individual what he is, since, if any part whatever in an individual were to vanish or alter, it would no longer be that individual at all. The philosophy of absolute idealism, so vigorously represented both in Scotland and America today, has to struggle with this difficulty quite as much as scholastic theism struggled in its time. And although it would be premature to say that there is no speculative issue whatever from the puzzle, it is perfectly fair to say that there is no clear or easy issue, and that the only obvious escape from paradox here is to cut loose from the monistic assumption altogether, and to allow the world to have existed from its origin in pluralistic form, as an aggregate or collection of higher and lower things and principles, rather than an absolutely unitary fact. For then, evil would not need to be essential. It might be, and may always have been, an independent portion that had no rational or absolute right to live with the rest and which we might conceivably hope to see got rid of at last. Now the gospel of healthy-mindedness, as we have described it, casts its vote distinctively for this pluralistic view. Whereas the monistic philosopher finds himself more or less bound to say, as Hegel did, that everything actual is rational, and that evil, as an element dialectically required, must be pinned in and kept and consecrated, and have a function awarded to it in the final system of truth, healthy-mindedness refuses to say anything of the sort. Footnote. I say this in spite of the monistic utterances of many mind-cure writers, for these utterances are really inconsistent with their attitude towards disease, and can easily be shown not to be logically involved in the experiences of union with a higher presence, with which they connect themselves. The higher presence, namely, need not be the absolute whole of things. It is quite sufficient for the life of religious experience to regard it as a part, if only it be the most ideal part. End footnote. Evil, it says, is emphatically irrational and not to be pinned in 
or preserved or consecrated in any final system of truth it is a pure abomination to the lord an alien unreality a waste element to be sloughed off and negated and the very memory of it if possible wiped out and forgotten the ideal so far from being co-extensive with the whole actual is a mere extract from the actual marked by its deliverance from all contact with this diseased inferior and excrementitious stuff here we have the interesting notion fairly and squarely presented to us of there being elements of the universe which may make no rational whole in conjunction with the other elements and which from the point of view of any system which those other elements make up can only be considered so much irrelevance and accident so much dirt as it were and matter out of place i ask you now not to forget this notion for although most philosophers seem either to forget it or to disdain it too much ever to mention it i believe that we shall have to admit it ourselves in the end as containing an element of truth the mind-cure gospel thus once more appears to us as having dignity and importance we have seen it to be a genuine religion and no mere silly appeal to imagination to cure disease we have seen its method of experimental verification to be not unlike the method of all science and now here we find mind-cure as the champion of a perfectly definite conception of the metaphysical structure of the world i hope that in view of all this you will not regret my having pressed it upon your attention at such length let us now say good-bye for a while to all this way of thinking and turn towards those persons who cannot so swiftly throw off the burden of the consciousness of evil but are congenitally fated to suffer from its presence just as we saw that in healthy-mindedness there are shallower and profounder levels happiness like that of the mere animal and more regenerate sorts of happiness so also are there different levels of the morbid mind and the one is much more formidable than the other there are people for whom evil means only a maladjustment of things a wrong correspondence of one's life with the environment such evil as this is curable in principle at least upon the natural plane for merely by modifying either the self or the things or both at once the two terms may be made to fit and all go merry as a marriage bell again but there are others for whom evil is no mere relation of the subject to particular outer things but something more radical and general a wrongness or vice in his essential nature which no alteration of the environment or any superficial rearrangement of the inner self can cure and which requires a supernatural remedy on the whole the latin races have leaned more towards the former way of looking upon evil as made up of ills and sins in the plural removable in detail while the germanic races have tended rather to think of sin in the singular and with a capital s as of something ineradicably ingrained in our natural subjectivity and never to be removed by any superficial piecemeal operations these comparisons of races are always open to exception but undoubtedly the northern tone in religion is inclined to the more intimately pessimistic persuasion and this way of feeling being the more extreme we shall find by far the more instructive for our study recent psychology has found great use for the word threshold as a symbolic designation for the point at which one state of mind passes into another thus we speak of the threshold of a man's consciousness in general to indicate the amount of noise pressure or other outer stimulus which it takes to arouse his attention at all one with a high threshold will doze through an amount of racket by which one with a low threshold would be immediately waked similarly when one is sensitive to small differences in any order of sensation we say he has a low difference threshold 
his mind easily steps over it into the consciousness of the differences in question. And just so we might speak of a pain threshold, a fear threshold, a misery threshold, and find it quickly overpassed by the consciousness of some individuals, but lying too high in others to be often reached by their consciousness. The sanguine and healthy-minded live habitually on the sunny side of their misery line. The depressed and melancholy live beyond it, in darkness and apprehension. There are men who seem to have started in life with a bottle or two of champagne inscribed to their credit, whilst others seem to have been born close to the pain threshold, which the slightest irritants fatally send them over. Does it not appear as if one who lived more habitually on one side of the pain threshold might need a different sort of religion from one who habitually lived on the other? This question of the relativity of different types of religion to different types of need arises naturally at this point, and will become a serious problem ere we have done. But before we confront it in general terms, we must address ourselves to the unpleasant task of hearing what the sick souls, as we may call them in contrast to the healthy-minded, have to say of the secrets of their prison-house, their own peculiar form of consciousness. Let us then resolutely turn our backs on the once-born and their sky-blue optimistic gospel. Let us not simply cry out, in spite of all appearances, Hurrah for the universe! God's in his heaven! All's right with the world! Let us see, rather, whether pity, pain, and fear, and the sentiment of human helplessness may not open a profounder view and put into our hands a more complicated key to the meaning of the situation. To begin with, how can things so insecure as the successful experiences of this world afford a stable anchorage? A chain is no stronger than its weakest link, and life is after all a chain. In the healthiest and most prosperous existence, how many links of illness, danger, and disaster are always interposed? Unsuspectedly, from the bottom of every fountain of pleasure, as the old poet said, something bitter rises up, a touch of nausea, a falling dead of the delight, a whiff of melancholy, things that sound a knell, for fugitive as they may be, they bring a feeling of coming from a deeper region and often have an appalling convincingness. The buzz of life ceases at their touch as a piano string stops sounding when the damper falls upon it. Of course, the music can commence again, and again and again at intervals. But with this, the healthy-minded consciousness is left with an irredeemable sense of precariousness. It is a bell with a crack. It draws its breath on sufferance and by accident. Even if we suppose a man so packed with healthy-mindedness as never to have experienced in his own person any of these sobering intervals, still, if he is a reflecting being, he must generalize and class his own lot with that of others, and, in doing so, he must see that his escape is just a lucky chance and no essential difference. He might just as well have been born to an entirely different fortune, and then indeed the hollow security. What kind of a frame of things is it of which the best you can say is, Thank God, it has let me off clear this time. Is not its blessedness a fragile fiction? Is not your joy in it a very vulgar glee, not much unlike the snicker of any rogue at his success? If indeed it were all success, even on such terms as that. But take the happiest man, the one most envied by the world, and in nine cases out of ten, his inmost consciousness is one of failure. Either his ideals in the line of his achievements are pitched far higher than the achievements themselves, or else he has secret ideals of which the world knows nothing, and in regard to which he inwardly knows himself to be found wanting. 
when such a conquering optimist as goethe can express himself in this wise how must it be with less successful men goethe writes in eighteen twenty four quote, i will say nothing against the course of my existence but at bottom it has been nothing but pain and burden and i can affirm that during the whole of my seventy-five years i have not had four weeks of genuine well-being it is but the perpetual rolling of a rock that must be raised up again for ever what single-handed man was ever on the whole as successful as luther yet when he had grown old he looked back on his life as if it were an absolute failure Quote, i am utterly weary of life i pray the lord will come forthwith and carry me hence let him come above all with his last judgment i will stretch out my neck the thunder will burst forth and i shall be at rest and having a necklace of white agates in his hand at the time he added o god grant that it may come without delay i would readily eat up this necklace to-day for the judgment to come to-morrow the electress dowager one day when luther was dining with her said to him doctor i wish you may live forty years to come madam replied he rather than live forty years more i would give up my chance of paradise failure then failure so the world stamps us at every turn we strew it with our blunders our misdeeds our lost opportunities with all the memorials of our inadequacy to our vocation and with what a damning emphasis does it then blot us out no easy fine no mere apology or formal expiation will satisfy the world's demands but every pound of flesh exacted is soaked with all its blood the subtlest forms of suffering known to man are connected with the poisonous humiliations incidental to these results and they are pivotal human experiences a process so ubiquitous and everlasting is evidently an integral part of life there is indeed one element in human destiny robert louis stevenson writes quote, that not blindness itself can controvert whatever else we are intended to do we are not intended to succeed failure is the fate allotted Close quote. footnote he adds with characteristic healthy-mindedness our business is to continue to fail in good spirits. End footnote. And our nature, being thus rooted in failure, is it any wonder that theologians should have held it to be essential, and thought that only through the personal experience of humiliation which it engenders the deeper sense of life's significance is reached? Footnote. The God of many men is little more than their court of appeal against the damnatory judgment passed on their failures by the opinion of this world. To our own consciousness, there is usually a residuum of worth left over after our sins and errors have been told off. Our capacity of acknowledging and regretting them is the germ of a better self, in posse at least, and the world deals with us in actu and not in posi, and of this hidden germ, not to be guessed at from without, it never takes account. Then we turn to the all-knower, who knows our bad, but knows this good in us also, and who is just. We cast ourselves with our repentance on his mercy. Only by an all-knower can we finally be judged. So the need of a God very definitely emerges from this sort of experience of life. End footnote. But this is only the first stage of the world sickness. Make the human being's sensitiveness a little greater, carry him a little farther over the misery threshold, and the good quality of the successful moments themselves when they occur is spoiled and vitiated. All natural goods perish, riches take wings fame is a breath love is a cheat 
youth and health and pleasure vanish can things whose end is always dust and disappointment be the real goods which our souls require back of everything is the great spectre of universal death the all-encompassing blackness Quote, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun i looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and behold all was vanity and vexation of spirit for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts as one dieth so dieth the other all are of the dust and all turn to dust again the dead know not anything neither have they any more a reward for the memory of them is forgotten also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished neither have they any more a portion for ever in anything that is done under the sun truly the light is sweet and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun but if a man live many years and rejoice in them all yet let him remember the days of darkness for they shall be many in short life and its negation are beaten up inextricably together but if the life be good the negation of it must be bad yet the two are equally essential facts of existence and all natural happiness thus seems infected with a contradiction the breath of the sepulchre surrounds it to a mind attentive to this state of things and rightly subject to the joy-destroying chill which such a contemplation engenders the only relief that healthy-mindedness can give is by saying stuff and nonsense get out into the open air or cheer up old fellow you'll be all right ere long if you will only drop your morbidness but in all seriousness can such bald animal talk as that be treated as a rational answer to ascribe religious value to mere happy-go-lucky contentment with one's brief chance at natural good is but the very consecration of forgetfulness and superficiality our troubles lie indeed too deep for that cure the fact that we can die that we can be ill at all is what perplexes us the fact that we now for a moment live and are well is irrelevant to that perplexity we need a life not correlated with death a health not liable to illness a kind of good that will not perish a good in fact that flies beyond the goods of nature it all depends on how sensitive the soul may become to discords the trouble with me is that i believe too much in common happiness and goodness said a friend of mine whose consciousness was of this sort and nothing can console me for their transiency i am appalled and disconcerted at its being possible and so with most of us a little cooling down of animal excitability and instinct a little loss of animal toughness a little irritable weakness and descent of the pain threshold will bring the worm at the core of all our usual springs of delight into full view and turn us into melancholy metaphysicians the pride of life and glory of the world will shrivel it is after all but the standing quarrel of hot youth and hoary eld old age has the last word the purely naturalistic look at life however enthusiastically it may begin is sure to end in sadness this sadness lies at the heart of every merely positivistic agnostic or naturalistic scheme of philosophy let sanguine healthy-mindedness do its best with the strange power of living in the moment and ignoring and forgetting still the evil background is really there to be thought of and the skull will grin in at the banquet in the practical life of the individual we know how this whole gloom or glee about any present fact depends 
on the remoter schemes and hopes with which it stands related its significance and framing give it the chief part of its value let it be known to lead nowhere and however agreeable it may be in its immediacy its glow and gilding vanish the old man sick with an insidious internal disease may laugh and quaff his wine at first as well as ever but he knows his fate now for the doctors have revealed it and the knowledge knocks the satisfaction out of all these functions they are partners of death and the worm is their brother and they turn to a mere flatness the lustre of the present hour is always borrowed from the background of possibilities it goes with let our common experiences be enveloped in an eternal moral order let our suffering have an immortal significance let heaven smile upon the earth and deities pay their visits let faith and hope be the atmosphere which man breathes in and his days pass by with zest they stir with prospects they thrill with remoter values place round them on the contrary the curdling cold and gloom and absence of all permanent meaning which for pure naturalism and the popular science evolutionism of our time are all that is visible ultimately and the thrill stops short or turns rather to an anxious trembling for naturalism fed on recent cosmological speculations mankind is in a position similar to that of a set of people living on a frozen lake surrounded by cliffs over which there is no escape yet knowing that little by little the ice is melting and the inevitable day drawing near when the last film of it will disappear and to be drowned ignominiously will be the human creature's portion the merrier the skating the warmer and more sparkling the sun by day and the ruddier the bonfires at night the more poignant the sadness with which one must take in the meaning of the total situation the early greeks are continually held up to us in literary works as models of the healthy-minded joyousness which the religion of nature may engender there was indeed much joyousness among the greeks homer's flow of enthusiasm for most things that the sun shines upon is steady but even in homer the reflective passages are cheerless and the moment the greeks grew systematically pensive and thought of ultimates they became unmitigated pessimists footnote example given quote, nothing then is more wretched anywhere than man of all that breathes and creeps upon this earth Close quote. another example quote, best of all for all things upon earth is it not to be born nor to behold the splendors of the sun next best to traverse as soon as possible the gates of hades Close quote. see also the almost identical passage in oedipus the anthology is full of pessimistic utterances naked came i upon the earth naked i go below the ground why then do i vainly toil when i see the end naked before me how did i come to be whence am i wherefore did i come to pass away how can i learn aught when not i know being not i came to life once more shall i be what i was nothing and nothingness is the whole race of mortals for death we are all cherished and fattened like a herd of hogs that is wantingly butchered the difference between greek pessimism and the oriental and modern variety is that the greeks had not made the discovery that the pathetic mood may be idealized and figure as a higher form of sensibility their spirit was still too essentially masculine for pessimism to be elaborated or lengthily dwelt on in their classic literature they would have despised a life set wholly in a minor key and summoned it to keep within the proper bounds of lachrymosity the discovery that the enduring emphasis so far as this world goes 
may be laid on its pain and failure was reserved for races more complex and so to speak more feminine than the helens had attained to being in the classic period but all the same was the outlook of those helens blackly pessimistic End footnote. the jealousy of the gods the nemesis that follows too much happiness the all-encompassing death fate's dark opacity the ultimate and unintelligible cruelty were the fixed background of their imagination the beautiful joyousness of their polytheism is only a poetic modern fiction they knew no joys comparable in quality of preciousness to those which we shall ere long see that brahmans buddhists christians mohammedans twice-born people whose religion is non-naturalistic get from their several creeds of mysticism and renunciation stoic sensibility and epicurean resignation were the farthest advance which the greek mind made in that direction the epicurean said quote, seek not to be happy but rather to escape unhappiness strong happiness is always linked with pain therefore hug the safe shore and do not tempt the deeper raptures avoid disappointment by expecting little and by aiming low and above all do not fret Close quote. the stoics said quote, the only genuine good that life can yield a man is the free possession of his own soul all other goods are lies Close quote. each of these philosophies is in its degree a philosophy of despair in nature's boons trustful self-abandonment to the joys that freely offer has entirely departed from both epicurean and stoic and what each proposes is a way of rescue from the resultant dust and ashes state of mind the epicurean still awaits results from economy of indulgence and damping of desire the stoic hopes for no results and gives up natural good altogether there is dignity in both these forms of resignation they represent distinct stages in the sobering process which man's primitive intoxication with sense happiness is sure to undergo in the one the hot blood has grown cool in the other it has become quite cold and although i have spoken of them in the past tense as if they were merely historic yet stoicism and epicureanism will probably be to all time typical attitudes marking a certain definite stage accomplished in the evolution of the world-sick soul footnote for instance on the very day on which i write this page the post brings me some aphorisms from a worldly wise old friend in heidelberg which may serve as a good contemporaneous expression of epicureanism Quote, by the word happiness every human being understands something different it is a phantom pursued only by weaker minds the wise man is satisfied with the more modest but much more definite term contentment what education should chiefly aim at is to save us from a discontented life health is one favoring condition but by no means an indispensable one of contentment woman's heart and love are a shrewd device of nature a trap which she sets for the average man to force him into working but the wise man will always prefer work chosen by himself Close quote. End footnote. they mark the conclusion of what we call the once born period and represent the highest flights of what twice-born religion would call the purely natural man epicureanism which can only by great courtesy be called a religion showing his refinement and stoicism exhibiting his moral will they leave the world in the shape of an unreconciled contradiction and seek no higher unity compared with the complex ecstasies which the supernaturally regenerated christian may enjoy or the oriental pantheist indulge in 
their receipts for equanimity are expedients which seem almost crude in their simplicity please observe however that i am not yet pretending finally to judge any of these attitudes i am only describing their variety the securest way to the rapturous sorts of happiness of which the twice-born make report has as an historic matter of fact been through a more radical pessimism than anything that we have yet considered we have seen how the lustre and enchantment may be rubbed off from the goods of nature but there is a pitch of unhappiness so great that the goods of nature may be entirely forgotten and all sentiment of their existence vanish from the mental field for this extremity of pessimism to be reached something more is needed than observation of life and reflection upon death the individual must in his own person become the prey of a pathological melancholy as the healthy-minded enthusiast succeeds in ignoring evil's very existence so the subject of melancholy is forced in spite of himself to ignore that of all good whatever for him it may no longer have the least reality such sensitiveness and susceptibility to mental pain is a rare occurrence where the nervous constitution is entirely normal one seldom finds it in a healthy subject even where he is the victim of the most atrocious cruelties of outward fortune so we note here the neurotic constitution of which i said so much in my first lecture making its active entrance on our scene and destined to play a part in much that follows since these experiences of melancholy are in the first instance absolutely private and individual i can now help myself out with personal documents painful indeed they will be to listen to and there is almost an indecency in handling them in public yet they lie right in the middle of our path and if we are to touch the psychology of religion at all seriously we must be willing to forget conventionalities and dive below the smooth and lying official conversational surface one can distinguish many kinds of pathological depression sometimes it is mere passive joylessness and dreariness discouragement dejection lack of taste and zest and spring professor Rebot has proposed the name anhedonia to designate this condition he writes quote, the state of anhedonia if i may coin a new word to pair off with analgesia has been very little studied but it exists a young girl was smitten with a liver disease for which some time altered her constitution she felt no longer any affection for her father and mother she would have played with her doll but it was impossible to find the least pleasure in her act the same things which formerly convulsed her with laughter entirely failed to interest her now Esquirol observed the case of a very intelligent magistrate who was also a prey to hepatic disease every emotion appeared dead within him he manifested neither perversion nor violence but complete absence of emotional reaction if he went to the theatre which he did out of habit he could find no pleasure there the thought of his house of his home of his wife and of his absent children moved him as little he said as a theorem of euclid prolonged seasickness will in most persons produce a temporary condition of anhedonia every good terrestrial or celestial is imagined only to be turned from with disgust a temporary condition of this sort connected with the religious evolution of a singularly lofty character both intellectual and moral is well described by the catholic philosopher father gratry in his autobiographical recollections in consequence of mental isolation and excessive study at the polytechnic school young gratry fell into a state of nervous exhaustion with symptoms which he thus describes Quote, 
I had such a universal terror that I woke up at night with a start, thinking that the Pantheon was tumbling on the Polytechnic School, or that the school was in flames, or that the Seine was pouring into the catacombs, and that Paris was being swallowed up. And when these impressions were passed, all day long without respite, I suffered an incurable and intolerable desolation, verging on despair. I thought myself, in fact, rejected by God, lost, damned. I felt something like the suffering of hell. Before that, I had never even thought of hell. My mind had never turned in that direction. Neither discourses nor reflections had impressed me in that way. I took no account of hell. Now, and all at once, I suffered in a measure that is suffered there. But what was perhaps still more dreadful is that every idea of heaven was taken away from me. I could no longer conceive anything of the sort. Heaven did not seem to be worth going to. It was like a vacuum, a mythological elysium, an abode of shadows less real than the earth. I could conceive no joy no pleasure in inhabiting it. Happiness, joy, light, affection, love, all these words were now devoid of sense. Without doubt, I could still have talked of all these things, but I had become incapable of feeling anything in them, of understanding anything about them, of hoping anything from them, or of believing them to exist. There was my great and inconsolable grief. I neither perceived nor conceived any longer the existence of happiness or perfection. An abstract heaven over a naked rock. Such was my present abode for eternity. Quote. Footnote. Some persons are affected with anhedonia permanently, or at any rate, with a loss of the usual appetite for life. The annals of suicide supply such examples as the following. An uneducated domestic servant, aged 19, poisons herself and leaves two letters expressing her motive for the act. To her parents, she writes, Life is sweet, perhaps to some, but I prefer what is sweeter than life, and that is death. So, goodbye forever, my dear parents. It is nobody's fault, but a strong desire of my own which I have longed to fulfill for three or four years. I have always had a hope that some day I might have an opportunity of fulfilling it, and now it has come. It is a wonder I have put this off so long, but I thought perhaps I should cheer up a bit and put all thought out of my head. To her brother, she writes, Goodbye forever, my own dearest brother. By the time you get this, I shall be gone forever. I know, dear love, there is no forgiveness for what I am going to do. I am tired of living, so I am willing to die. Life may be sweet to some, but death to me is sweeter. End footnote. End of Lecture 6